Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and today on the program I have with me Professor Niels Buerbommer, a psychologist and neurobiologist. He's a leading figure in the development of brain-computer interfaces, a field he has researched for 40 years with a focus on treating brain disturbances. He's been awarded numerous international honours and prizes, including the Albert Einstein World Award of Science. Currently, he's the co-director of the Institute of Behavioural Neurobiology at the University of Tübingen in Germany and senior researcher at the Weiss Centre for Bio and Neuroengineering in Switzerland. We are interviewing him today, however, because of a recent book that he's published called Your Brain Knows More Than You Think, The New Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Welcome, Professor Beerbommer. Hi. The book goes through numerous chapters, and I thought that it would be important to ask, first of all, why you felt it was important to write the book. Well, because most of the treatment methodologies based on brain science and behavior which are not using pharmacological agents, are not very well known in the common public. So I thought it's important to particular for patients, but also for families, to give them information about what can be done in diseases like anxiety, paralysis, epilepsy, without drugs. Yes, and a new technology. (laughs) It's a whole new way of doing things. Yes. So at the beginning of the book, you really discuss initially the plastic brain. Would you mind just expanding on that briefly for us? Yes, most of the brain areas responsible for behavioral, but also some uh, organic disorders like stroke and epilepsy, most of these areas, uh, the cells in these areas are highly plastic, means that these cells respond to learning condition and they can be modified throughout lifetime, and they follow the usual rules of learning, which we know from psychology, meaning that we can change them and modify them after a longer learning process, a behavioral process, without any other influences. And that means that some of these disorders, if drugs don't work or if they have negative side effects, as in some severe epilepsies, you can change the brain excitation through training in a manner that epileptic seizures are suppressed. And this is something which, you know, the the general lay public doesn't know. So how do you describe to people this new way of looking at the brain, first of all, and then of treating the brain, (laughs) the problem? Well, it's uh, fairly easy. The training mechanisms are the same one like the one you learn in school. The only difference is that we feed back the brain activity, the own brain activity of a person, back to the person, so the person can see or manipulate his own brain activity, and the computer gives the person information about that brain activity. i give you an example. If you're completely paralyzed after a stroke in the right hand or left hand, you think about a movement, the thoughts create some nervous activity, these nervous activity is recorded from your head and the, the decoder or the mathematical algorithm is transforming your thinking into the right hand movement. So you see your hand moving according to your decision despite the fact that it's paralyzed. And that in itself changes the, the, the healthy nerve cells around the stroke area or around the lesion or destroyed area and change it in a manner so that these cells around 
the brain area which was destroyed are working properly after such a training procedure. Not in all patients, of course. These are no miracles. But uh, in many patients, it leads to control, voluntary control of the paralyzed hand. Right. So you first discovered this um, way of communicating, I guess, with the brain in people who couldn't really move in locked-in syndrome, from what I can gather from your book. Do you mind just describing to people what locked-in syndrome is? Yes. Um, Locked-in syndrome means that your brain or your spirits and your mental activity is working, but for different reasons, in different diseases, the complete body is paralyzed. And there are two types of locked-in syndrome. One, the locked-in syndrome proper is if you still can move your eyes and the rest of the body is paralyzed and you are mentally intact and awake. And the completely locked-in syndrome means that you cannot move your eyes or any other muscle in the body anymore, but you hear and you perceive and you think as normal as anybody else. And this, of course, is a terrible situation. You cannot articulate any willful command to the outside world anymore. And we developed a system where we can record the oxygen change in the brain during the thinking of a yes and a no answer to a simple question. So the people get questions from the computer, from the voice of the closest relative, and they hear these questions And uh, after the end of the question, they have to think a yes or a no. And after a certain amount of training, the computer recognizes the yes and no. And that means that the patients then can at least answer to these questions. Uh, If they want to uh, talk like verbal uh, uh, behavior, selecting letters or words, that's not possible with a non-invasive device. Those patients who want to have more flexible communication in a completely locked-in state, they have to be operated and then we implant electrodes in the cell of the brains of these people. And with implanted electrodes, it is possible to select letters with a thought, I want this, or I click on this, like a computer click. They think about the command, and then this thinking is activating the cells, and the cells Uh, activity goes to the computer and then the word on the computer screen is selected and that allows voluntary communication but that of course needs an operation and a brain surgery. Yes so that's a bit more advanced but it's for people who would, would want to continue to live. Yes. And therefore want to communicate and through them you've learned an awful lot haven't you? They've helped you a great deal on your research as well. Yes and uh, you know they've got the amazing Amazing. One of the amazing results was to find that these people, despite their terrible situation, are in good spirits and they are, uh, have a high quality of life if the caretakers are within the family context. So those people who are living in the family and the family is taking care of these patients, they have a very high quality of life, so it's worth training with them, brain communication with a brain-computer interface. Those people who live in institutions usually don't want to live there. Yes, okay, so they don't have as much of a will to live, if you like. Yes. 
You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing the brain's neuroplasticity and the interface between computers and brains with Professor Niels Burbomer of the Weiss Centre for Bio and Neuroengineering in Switzerland. So Professor Birbomer, you then go on to discuss people suffering from epilepsy or stroke. So what is the basic interface there that you use, the mode of treatment? It's very similar to what I described for the locked-in syndrome. So in the case of epilepsy, we know uh, when a seizure starts. So the brain activity before a seizure starts, a few seconds before it starts, is a highly excited uh, brain activity, which you can measure with electroencephalography, with a few electrodes on your head. And so the patient learns, he looks at his own brain activity in the computer, and he can see the increasing excitation of the cells leading to a seizure. And over many, many, many sessions, usually about 50 to 100 hours of sessions, they learn to unconsciously perceive the beginning of a seizure. And they can see it on the screen. And they have to learn to produce an inhibitory blocking response. And they can see this also on the screen. The screen is giving them feedback about the inhibitory activity of their brain. And after a while, they learn to reduce that increasing excitation before the seizure. And they learn it through reward and to the feedback. So they get rewarded if they reduce the excitation. And as I said, after several sessions, they slowly learn to reduce the excitatory activity. That's for the epilepsy. In stroke, the situation is different. In stroke, people think a movement of the paralyzed hand, the thoughts are transformed, the electrical bases of the thoughts are transformed by a mathematical algorithm in a peripheral excitation to the computer or to a, or to a prosthetic device which is fixed to the paralyzed hand. The prosthetic device moves according to the thoughts and the voluntary intention of the patient and uh, the patient sees his paralyzed hand moving with the help of the robotic device. And after about 20 hours of training, you can slowly reduce and eliminate the prosthetic device. And most patients can learn to move their hand without the prosthetic device after a while, because in most stroke patients, some lines, some fibers from the destroyed brain area to the hand are still intact and the brain learns to use these remaining fibers with this trick that the voluntary command is transformed into real movement. Mm, fascinating. Does it depend on how long since their stroke as to how successful? No, no. 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 These people, are. we had patients, uh, the criterion was that the stroke has to be one year, so these people were all chronic, they had uh, their stroke, was uh, back uh, 1 to 15 years, and it, there was no difference in age, there was no difference in gender, there was no difference in the time since stroke. So overall, it works in all types of chronic stroke patients. That's fascinating because you would think that they would get fixed flexure deformities, but... Uh... No, no, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, these cells around the destroyed brain act, uh, area, they are still active. They are not destroyed, they are still active, and they can be reactivated 
by the proper feedback and by the proper learning mechanisms. So is it really alluding more there to the arm, for example, the arm itself, that if it's not used yes. for a prolonged period of time, it becomes quite atrophied? And yes. is that one of the yeah. issues that you face? Yeah, that's one of the major problems is that the patients are using the healthy arm. And by using the healthy arm, they overuse the brain area responsible for the healthy arm. And by that, they destroy the healthy cells of the sick arm, of the paralyzed arm. The best training for stroke patients, if they are not completely paralyzed, is to fix, fix the healthy arm and force them to use the... I knew you were going to say the, that. To use the, yes, yes, <laughs> I knew yes. you were going to say that. That's cruel. Yeah, yes. I know. That's what they did to the monkeys when they first realized, wasn't it? That the, yes. and you're, and There was a big yes. outcry from the animal liberationists, but basically they strapped yes. their... Yeah, exactly, and that's how they knew that this could work. But you've actually developed it further than that yeah, by yeah. a feedback mechanism, whereas they just used a banana to, you know, that they, had, they were hungry and they had to reach for it. Yeah, yes, this is yes, more sophisticated. Yes. You know, the... Uh, the constraint movement therapy developed by Edward Taub works excellent in people who have still some remaining movement, but it doesn't work in patients who are completely paralyzed. You can imagine if I fix your healthy arm, if I fix your healthy arm and the other arm is completely paralyzed, you cannot even eat, you cannot feed yourself, so you don't learn anything. So, but if you have still some remaining muscle, then it works perfectly well. So we only take patients who are completely paralyzed. For the other patient, this taup training, the taup uh, movement training is much better, much cheaper and faster. And this is going on in Switzerland at the moment. Is that the case? Uh, these projects are happening now in Switzerland, in Geneva, at the WIS Center, and they happen in Tübingen, Germany, uh, at the University of Tübingen, and uh, the stroke projects are taking place right now in Spain, in Basque Country, in San Sebastian. So we distribute this all over Europe. Okay. And the next part of the book goes on very interestingly to talk about controlling anxiety and depression without medication. What is that about? Well, that's not new. This is basically behavioral training, which is used in most psychological, clinical psychological environments. But um, what I emphasize is that the major factor in treatment of anxiety and depression is to confront the patient extensively and over a long period of time with the feared object or with the feared thought. So you have to, in, in psychotherapy, you have to bring the patient as much as you can in the real situation. You have to evoke the real life anxiety and you cannot work with imagery. You cannot work with relaxation alone because uh, the, the extinction process the learning to forget the fear and the learning to forget the negative thought of depression needs a real-life confrontation. And that's, of course, extremely demanding for the therapist and for the patient. And very often ethical committees interfere with this also because they say it's, it's brutal to confront a patient who has fear from traffic with the most terrible traffic situation. But uh, I emphasize in this book that that you have to do it, and it's therapeutically, therapeutically critical that you confront them because then when you record the brain activity during this confrontation, you can see that the brain is learning to forget the anxiety only after that confrontation. And most psychotherapists are not using this. So they, you know, they're sitting here in their relaxation chair, they imagine things, they talk a lot, and this has no effect. 
So the only realising, literally, the understanding of the English word realising the incident or the fear itself or going into the very bad feeling is all that really works. And you can see that from your computer uh, analysis, if you like. Yes. Okay. And that that's the only thing that really uh, changes the patterns in that part of the brain. in the brain. Okay. Okay. So that produces different neurotransmitters, etc., and starts to get happier. Yes. Or more yeah. relaxed. Okay. The next fascinating section that you go on to is even psychopaths can change. Now, I think this is where you, you might be stirring up a bit of controversy, but anyway, uh, would you like to discuss what you understand is the brain of a psychopath and how that may be altered? Well, a major factor in criminal psychopathy is a lack of fear. So these are people who have difficulties in learning to anticipate fearful situations. They cannot emotionally anticipate the consequences of what they're doing to others and to themselves if fear is involved. So it's very specific for a lack of fear. And and the consequence, particularly if these people are having not enough high intelligence or education, is that they become criminals. Of course, there exist many successful psychopaths who are highly intelligent, who have a lack of fear, and these people in a competitive society are very successful, but we cannot investigate them, we cannot look at them because, because they would never participate in an experiment. So we know only what's happening in the psychopathic criminal brain, and, and these people show a complete lack of blood flow in the fear areas of the brain, which are called the amygdala, the insula, and some of the orbitofrontal cortex. In these areas we know, and what we did uh, in these patients, we confronted them with these brain areas on the computer, so they learned to increase the activity in these brain areas, and the computer gave them feedback about the activity, and within 10 to 15 hours, they need longer than healthy people. Within a certain period of time, they all learn to reactivate these areas. And then you can start doing a behavioral training, which most prisons now, they at least in Europe, do that. And, and the combination of the behavioral training and the brain training at least reactivates these brain circuits. Now, if you ask me whether... This has an effect of the relapse rate and the criminal relapse rate of these people. I don't know. All these patients are still in prison, and I would not dare to let them out right, <laughs> at right in time. Uh, uh, I, I, I only can say <laughs> their brain is fairly back to normal after long training. Whether this then has an effect in real life, we don't know. We couldn't look at that. Do they suffer problems because they then develop insight into what they've done and they show remorse by any chance? Yes, they develop a fear and they develop disgust, which they don't have before the training. No. So the hope would be that most of these people were sexual uh, criminals and, and you can hope that at least the capacity to develop a negative fearful or a negative disgust emotion uh, is at least given whether this will happen then in reality is another question. Yes, okay, yeah, oh, good. I'm pleased that we're not experimenting with that just <laughs> yes. yet. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. 
And then I suppose the next chapter goes on to discuss living better with Parkinson's and dementia. Now, that would be a great interest to a lot of people as they get older because it's become a huge fear. It's in our country at any rate. People have become far more uh, frightened of dementia than they have of cancer. Yes. Um, it's gotten a lot of well, publicity. Well, there's good reason. <laughs> yeah. There's good reason for yeah. this. Uh, and I cannot offer in that book, uh, in, I cannot offer treatment for any of these diseases. What my argument was is that, uh, of course, with psychological training and with neurofeedback training and brain training, you can postpone the extreme symptoms of, uh, of Parkinson and of uh, dementia for about a year or one and a half year. And if people are older, then one and a half year may be a lot. So, so by by a widespread intensive uh, brain training, uh, you can postpone these symptoms and and the burden on society. But we don't have a treatment either, so uh, we cannot block it or we cannot we cannot treat it in the sense that it goes away. It just it just the the symptoms are getting better, but the overall problem remains. So that's a little hopeful. There are some other therapies that are coming yeah. along, I suppose, in this new field, which requires better measuring devices and and engineering and and technology. So yeah. that, that might yeah. be a good thing to combine. And then you go on to discuss treating ADHD, which is actually quite a problem yeah. here as well. Can you yeah. describe for listeners, I suppose, your definition of ADHD? Well, we used only. Uh, children, mainly male children, in the age from 10 to 16, but you can also start earlier, you can start about every seven. And the main symptom, the core symptom, is a lack of concentration and attention. Some of the kids are also hyperactive, you know, they run around, they destroy things, they're very difficult to handle at home and in school. Uh, uh, but what, what we found is that the attention of disorder, the concentration, the focus of attention, that can be trained. That can be trained, again, by a neurofeedback procedure. So the, the, the kid is sitting in front of the computer for a while, and it's amazing that they can do this, which we thought would be difficult, but they can do it. They all like computer games today. So they're looking at the computer, and at the computer, they see an animated virtual reality object which reflects their brain activity in the frontal part of their brain where, the, where this disorder origins. And they are trained to increase the cortical activity of the frontal areas of the brain. And whenever they, they, they hear a noise like a little tone, and then they have to increase the electric excitation of these brain areas. And after 10 seconds, they receive a reward, most missed with points, and later they can exchange these points uh, for gifts. And that goes on for about 13 to 15 sessions. And after, the tra- after this brain training, we train them with a portable device in their natural environment, like in the school. We cooperate with schools, and, and they train them in the natural environment at home when they do homework and at school when they have to concentrate in the real-life situation, doing the same thing. And what we found is that uh, we are not as effective in the short run as drugs are. You know, most of these kids now are treated with Ritalin, with an excitatory drug. And, uh, but the long-term effects of this drug are not known, and they're probably not very good. And the side effects are sometimes very severe. 
Yeah, they get desensitised too. They need larger and larger doses often, which is not surprising. And I should imagine you'd be able to describe that as a neurobiologist, why that happens. Exactly. Yeah. So so we can can reduce uh, the amount of of concentration failures. And by that, of course, you also reduce the danger later in puberty. Many of these kids uh, take drugs. They become criminal and and by training them in in with their attentional focus, they survive the school better than they wouldn't. And the consequence, of course, of the better school uh, uh, results is that they are not that they are not getting criminal and drug dependent later on. So, as I said, the short-term effects are not as good as Ritalin, but the long-term effects are better. Uh, and of course, we don't have the side effects. The combination of the two may help, but that's not very well investigated. And uh, it may also be that with drugs, uh, you reduce the effect of the behavioral and the neurofeedback training because if you take drugs, it's the drug who changes your behavior. And then the motivation to use your behavioral tricks to change it are too low. So usually we don't want to combine drugs with behavioral training. But in this case, but that's, again, it's a question of future investigation, uh, in this case, it may be good to to start with a combination of drugs and training, and then slowly eliminate the drug when the training starts having its effect. But that's not clear right now. As a family practitioner, I'd ask you, I'd I'd support that one yes. because they get such positive feedback at school. They start to yes. really settle well and with the Ritalin exactly. initially, yes. and that is its own reward. They don't want to be in trouble. Yes. <laughs> on the whole, yes. you know, they're yes. not troublemakers. They just can't not. help themselves. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. It's it, it, it's involuntarily, you know, because this the, these are the front layers. They cannot consciously control this, and they are not. And but they don't want to be the way they are. It's for them. It's a, it's a burden. Many of these children are depressed because of the involuntary action of their brain in this situation. Yes, yes, and it makes them very cranky. There is another section on perception, which I think would be probably for those people who are functioning very well and want to increase their their functioning level, yes. and then how it could be used, this technology, to actually reduce life greed, addiction, and want, 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 which is a fascinating chapter. So the possibilities are you know, only just being worked out, this book is published by Scribe in Australia, and yes. uh, people can get it through Scribe. Do you know where else they can get the book from? I guess they can get it to the usual sources, any library. They can order it in any bookshop they want. They can order it everywhere. The book is Your Brain Knows More Than You Think, The New Frontiers of Neuroplasticity by Professor Niels Burbomer, and the reference will be on our website, wellbeing to nurfm Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Professor Niels Buerbomer, a psychologist and neurobiologist. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and all of us here at Wellbeing wish you well.